Well, do you ever find yourself getting in a bidding war about who serves more? I think our passage today will speak a little bit to that. <clears throat> but before we get into our passage this morning, let me tell you about when I was growing up. My mother tells me that I was obsessed with watching movies over and over and over and over again. In fact, back in the early 1980s, we had something called VHS tapes and this little thing called a VCR. Perhaps you've heard of those. The cartoons had poor animation comparatively, but nevertheless, this didn't stop me from wanting to see certain movies repeatedly. In fact, one of my favorites was the children's classic, Charlotte's Web. There was a movie back in the 80s that was redone recently. Perhaps you've seen it. Well, the animated film was based on a wonderful story by E.B. White. The plot revolved around a spider named Charlotte who lives in a barn above the stall of a pig named Wilbur, right? As the story goes, Wilbur is worried that once he gets fat, the farmer is going to turn him into bacon, which was a valid concern. We all love bacon, right? Charlotte and Wilbur develop a close friendship, and as Wilbur gets bigger, Charlotte uses all her resources to rescue Wilbur. She writes messages in her web, trying to convince the farm's owners that Wilbur is a pig worth saving. After all, that's some pig, right? The story builds, and the final chapter in the the story is entitled, The Moment of Triumph. And what was Charlotte's moment of triumph? Well, in his book, Zealots, by uh, author David Gibbons, reflects on the nature of true success as a leader as it relates to Charlotte's web. Well, that may sound funny, but you see... As the story ends, Charlotte the spider is in the barn, dying. Wilbur the pig is being judged at the county fair in a pig contest. And as she lays in the barn, Charlotte, all she can hear is the roar of applause for Wilbur as he wins a special prize and his life is spared. You see, Charlotte finds great joy in knowing that her life has meant the success of another, her close friend Wilbur. And though no one will remember her, The things she has done, the sacrifices she has made, she is satisfied, having loved her friend in life and death. And then Charlotte dies, which for me was just about as traumatic as watching Bambi's mom die. So if you can sympathize with that, you're with me. But Gibbons, reflecting on Charlotte's web, uh, concludes something very profound about leadership. And this is what he says. He says, leadership is about fading. The great ones move into irrelevance. Wow. Leadership is about fading. The great ones move into irrelevance. And I bet you never thought you would learn something about leadership from Charlotte's Web. But leadership is about fading. Great leadership is about helping others succeed and pointing people away from yourself. Now, you're saying that sounds great and all, but if we're honest, most of us struggle with this. We feel the tension in our lives because we don't want others to get the glory We want the glory to be gotten for ourselves. It is what I've heard people call the dark side of leadership, that the more power and influence that you attain, the easier it is to believe that you're awesome and crave more attention. In fact, often the more power and attention you get, the more you want and the more you're willing to do to get it. But great leadership is about fading and pointing out the success in others. In other words, I would suggest that great leadership is about serving others well. That great leadership and service must be wed together. Do you feel that tension, though? We don't, oh, we don't want to do that. In fact, serving others is hard. 
Pointing out the success in other people is not naturally what we do. In fact, someone recently posted on Facebook this question. What makes it hard for you to serve other people? Here was a couple of the responses. Serving is hard when it doesn't fit into my schedule or plan. Like when I want to go for a walk or take a long bath, but my aging parent needs me to sort their meds, run an errand, or simply be with them. In other words, serving is often inconvenient. Another person said this, it is hard when their needs seem endless. I don't want to risk helping or serving because I may get sucked in, being swallowed up in the serving and not getting to be the me I think I am or should be. See, we don't serve many times because we fear we're enabling others. Or how about this one? There is such limited energy after a demanding workday meeting our basic responsibilities, whether that's with, with young kids or in the corporate world. How do you balance the need for rest and self-care with serving others? Because you see, serving many times can be exhausting. Have you ever felt that way? It's inconvenient. We might enable someone. It's exhausting. And friends, serving people is hard. Leadership is hard, but it's about fading. It is the call of Christ followers who want to grow into maturity to look to the needs of others first. Now, we only have a few weeks left in our series, Expanding the Table for the Glory of God. We've covered a number of uh, core values that you see up there. Today, we're talking about developing servant leaders. And this is the value we want to highlight today because we, believe, we want to be a church that develops servant leaders. Not just leaders, servant leaders. In fact, you heard just a few minutes ago, Pastor Dave highlight our need for more people to engage in the care ministry of our church. Don't forget to visit the booth in the back as you leave today. Because we want to be a church where the spiritual, physical, and emotional needs of our church body are met. In other words, we need more servant leaders who will step up and answer that call. Now, to discover the secret of servant leadership, I want to take you to chapter 10 of Mark's gospel this morning. Uh, There's a well-known passage there which offers some significant lessons about servant leadership. So feel free to join me in your Bibles, or the um, verses will be up on the screen. So let's set up the scene. Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus has told his disciples twice already that he is going to die when he gets there. And in chapter 10... He repeats himself again, if you look down to verse 32. And it says, And taking the twelve, they began to tell them what was, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now put yourself in this scene. You've been walking with Jesus for some time now, and he says, and has been saying, some shocking things. This may be some of the most shocking things he said. He's going to die? I mean, really? He's going to abandon you and your friends? This can't be, you're thinking. And yet, it's the third time that Jesus has predicted his death, so it's getting serious. Each time, the disciples don't understand these implications, but it's about to become much clearer to them. That Jesus, in his sacrifice, is about to show them what it means to be a servant leader. And so in this passage that follows, Jesus is going to unpack servant leadership for his disciples, and we will view it in three scenes. The request, 
the response, and the reality of true greatness. The request, the response, and the reality of true greatness. And in each scene, we will learn a lesson about servant leadership. So with that in mind, would you please continue, uh, would you please pray with me before we continue? Father God, we humbly come before you now. Lord, we confess that so often we aren't humble. So often, Lord, we want to be glory thieves rather than giving you the glory that you deserve, Lord. We, we, we so often want to be in the spotlight and not in the background. Lord, will you help us to be better servants today? Father, would you help the words that I speak, Lord, not, not just be preached to everybody here, but also preached to myself, Lord. And Father, may we, we, we have our hearts transformed today. And as we leave, may we be people who give you the glory always. And we ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, Jesus' disciples don't understand what's happening, which is evidenced by our first scene, the request. The request. Now, immediately after Jesus tells his disciples a third time he is going to die, two disciples come to him and make a request, which you'll find out is both interesting and awkward. So let's look at what James and John ask of Jesus, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Um, okay. It's a little weird, right? I mean, Jesus just said he was going to die. And James and John immediately kind of disregard that fact and inform him they have this request. Now, picture this, like... Like, picture your own life. Imagine you've just told someone that you are diagnosed with cancer and have about a month to live. Or rather than empathizing with you, one of your good friends comes up and says, well, I have a request for you. I want want you to give me whatever I ask. (laughs) Weird, right? Or picture this. Your children come to you and say, Mom, Dad, I want you to give to me whatever I ask. And you as the parents say, hold on a second. Slow your roll. I have to have the request first. I have to know what I'm getting into. And Jesus doesn't shut them down, but he does the same thing. He simply asks, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? What's your request, Jesus says. Jesus is way too smart to get caught in a bad deal. I don't know if you figured it out yet, but you can't fool Jesus. He says patiently, I, I'm not guaranteeing anything until I hear what this request is. And so they, they tell him, verse 37, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now that's very interesting. But it also reveals the motives of James and John. And you may be asking yourself, what in the world is going on here? Well, let's consider some background. Jesus is going to Jerusalem And his disciples believe him to be the Messiah. His disciples assume this can mean only one thing, that there's going to be messianic war with the Romans. In fact, there might even be civil war because the elite priests won't give up their power to him. And so with that in mind, the request of James and John was really about an opportunity for advancement. They wanted to have positions of prestige in the coming kingdom that Jesus was going to usher in. Now, with that in mind, that seems like a pretty selfish request. But they didn't call James and John the sons of thunder for nothing. They were probably known for their aggressive personalities, which is coming out here. And the bottom line is this that we need to see. Their request revealed their motive. They were seeking their own glory rather than the glory of God. 
They were seeking their own glory rather than the glory of God. And in their request, we learn our first lesson about servant leadership, and it's this. Servant leaders examine their motives. Servant leaders examine their motives. Because Jesus saw right through James and John. He knew their motives, but he was patient with them. In fact, in C.S. Lewis's children's stories, The Chronicles of Narnia, he often describes Aslan the lion, his Christ figure, as looking straight through to the heart and motivations of people and having compassion. He would teach his children where they were wrong. And Jesus responds the same way. He teaches us that servant leaders examine their motives. Now, you may be sitting here today and you're new to serving, or... You may be sitting here today and you've, you've served quite a bit for quite a long time. You maybe serve on multiple teams in the church. You've, you've ser- served in, pos- in a position for many years. You may even be an elder. But have you ever stopped and asked yourself why you serve? What is your motivation? Because we have to be honest that sometimes our motives aren't pure, And that's the lesson we should learn from this request that James and John make. What are our motives? Are we in it for our fame or God's fame? It is very easy for our service to become about self-interest. Unless we examine our hearts, we may even convince ourselves that we're serving the Lord when we're actually serving out of a very selfish motive. Friends, hear me clearly. Anytime we acquire more influence, our motives can become corrupted. Consider this study. In the early 1970s, a psychologist named David Kipnis wanted to know if power, we hear this, power really does corrupt people. And so in a series of experiments, Kipnis had subjects assume the role of manager over a group of employees in a fictitious work setting. And in some cases, Kipnis gave the managers very little power. In other cases, the managers had considerable power. And they were more likely to use coercive or strong tactics such as criticizing employees, making demands, displaying anger. They were more dismissive of an employee's performance and they tended to credit themselves for employees' successes. We hear stories about this in the news all the time. Powerful bosses were also more likely to keep a psychological distance between themselves and their employees. And so Kipnis concluded that having power inflates our sense of self and makes us less able to empathize with those lacking power. Friends, have you ever noticed that power is like a drug? It's addictive. And so we have to look at our hearts. Servant leaders examine their motives because they are wise enough to know that their hearts can be deceitful. We need power from the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts daily. Now, this was an amazing request to be sure, but an even more amazing than this was Jesus' response to them. And that's our second scene, the response, the response of Jesus and his disciples. Now, here's why I love Jesus so much. He is incredibly gracious and patient with us. He sees through our selfish motivations and our actions, and he he teaches us out of love. We cannot hide our thoughts from Jesus, and his concern is our growth Look at how he responds to James and John, verse 38. It says this, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? See, Jesus tells them, friends, you have no idea what is about to happen. So I would rethink that request. 
Now, both metaphors Jesus uses here are images for suffering and death. In the Old Testament, the cup frequently signified God's judgment and wrath. In this context, it relates to Jesus' suffering and death. Likewise, baptism carries an image of being submerged. And so here it refers to Jesus being swept away in death by the events that are about to unfold. Now, clearly, James and John were not listening to Jesus when he said he's about to die. And their response to him reveals their ignorance. Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. We can take that cup, Jesus. We can take that baptism, right? But had they known what was about to really happen to Jesus, they may have responded differently. Now, it's likely that James and John are thinking that this may mean they're going to be martyred in this messianic war, but they certainly would not have been thinking about the cross, And that's really the point of verses 38 and 39, that despite their claim, James and John cannot go where Jesus is about to go. But that doesn't mean they won't suffer. In fact, Jesus continues, and it says, And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Did you catch what Jesus just said? It's very interesting, right? Although they can't go to the cross with him, he says they will experience suffering. Ultimately, Jesus says that that to follow him means to experience suffering and sacrifice. But it's not going to guarantee a promotion. They may not be guaranteed the position of authority they desire. Now, verse 40 is hard to interpret. Who are those for who it has been prepared, right? Right? Well, the text doesn't really say, it just just says here that God determines such things. However, if you look in the larger context of Mark, we would see that Jesus often says in in chapter 9, verse 35, the first will be last. Chapter 10, verse 15, the lowliest receive the kingdom. And in a few verses, we'll see that servants and slaves are the first and greatest, which has led commentator David Garland to put it this way. He says, it is not by merit but by humble submission to God that rank is determined in the kingdom. And I wonder if even in this statement, Jesus is teaching James and John a lesson about true greatness. It is achieved not by going up, but by going down in humility. Now, if you look further in the narrative, Jesus not only uh, gives a response to this, but some other people do. In fact, back in Mark 9.34, uh, we're told that the disciples have been arguing for a while about who's the greatest, like we saw in that, that video at the beginning here. So, so when James and John make, make this request of Jesus, it seems pretty obvious to the rest of the disciples that they're trying to scheme to get into a position of power, which elicits a response from them. Verse 41, this is what they say. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, again, put yourself in this scene. What would you have done if you were one of the disciples? (laughs) I mean, these guys are trying to climb the ladder over you. They may even uh, want to have power over you you so they can tell you what to do. And that is not okay with you. You're even thinking that right now. They're trying to curry favor with Jesus. And it says the other disciples were what? They were indignant. Now, you may be saying, of course they were. I would have been too, right? But let's pause and consider this question. Why were they indignant? Why would you be indignant? Because it's likely they're not angry at their friends having missed the boat on Jesus' teaching. 
They're not concerned about the souls of their friends. No, they are angry because they beat them to the punch. The other disciples are sitting there thinking in their minds, why didn't I think of that? Which is unfortunate and convicting, friends, because I think we often do the same thing. That when someone gets promoted or highlighted over us, our first reaction is not joy for them, but jealousy. And when this happens, relationships are wounded, which is, is a bigger price to pay than we think. I think there's a better, a better way. Let me share with you a story. Most people probably haven't heard of the pro football running back named Tony Richardson. Well, that's because his primary role involves helping other running backs succeed. He blocks so they can run. And over the course of a a 17-year pro football career, teams have often paired Richardson with some of the best running backs in pro football. In fact, in, in 2001, he was slated to be the main running back, but instead he went to his teammate, Priest Holmes, and told him, it's time for me to step out of the way. You need to be getting the ball, and I'm going to do everything I can to help you. Now that year, Holmes went on to lead the league in rushing, but Richardson never grew envious or resentful. As Holmes would later report, he says, he used to call me up and say, I just saw you on Sports Center," And he says, he was happier for me than I was for me. All of the running backs that Richardson helped succeed contend that his influence went beyond blocking for them. He would constantly talk to them through the game, advising, pushing, encouraging, inspiring them. In fact, in a recent interview, Tony Richardson said this. Listen, he says, I can't explain it, but it just means more to me to help someone else achieve glory. There's something about that that feels right to me. And friends, I think the question we're asking ourselves today is this. How do we develop more Tony Richardsons in our church? And I find this story so convicting because I realize that I'm the one who often wants the ball. Oftentimes, I want the glory. In fact, I still remember when I was a kid and I would play baseball and and our team might lose a game, but if I did well, I was satisfied. I wanted to have the ball on the pitcher's mound. I get upset when other people do better than me. I am just like the disciples in this scene. I have to realize that it's not about me. That we need to sacrifice our glory for the glory of another. We can't have it both ways. We have to choose. And so in both Jesus' response and the disciples' response, we learn an important lesson about servant leadership, and it's this. Servant leaders count the cost. Servant leaders count the cost. Because Tony Richardson understood that he wasn't going to get glory, but he counted the cost for himself. He chose to put the success of the team above his own success. And likewise, following Jesus is never easy. And often serving is not easy, and it's definitely not about me. Jesus' response teaches James and John the lesson that Spider-Man once learned. With great power comes great responsibility. Leadership is not easy. There is great responsibility, and there's a greater call to service. And so likewise, when we jump over people to promote ourselves, relationships are wounded, sometimes irreparably. We need to count the cost, my friends. But don't let the cost keep you from serving. Jesus is looking for people who are willing to incur great cost to themselves for his sake and the sake of others. Well, what does that look like? Well, perhaps today God is calling you to serve in an area that is hard, perhaps harder than you've experienced before. 
And the question today is this, would you be willing to push yourself to serve in a place that no one else wants to? You know, I, I, I used to take teenagers on mission trips, and every time we would go on a mission trip, people would always, always want to serve on the worship team. They wanted to serve with the kids' club. They wanted to serve, like, giving their testimonies, all the areas where people would notice them. Nobody ever wanted to volunteer to clean the toilets. But maybe... God is calling us to clean the toilets so that we understand what true service looks like before we take on a larger role. Maybe he needs us to count the cost. Let me share with you something that we've been praying through as a family uh, ministries team recently. We've been, we've been considering what it would look like to expand our special needs ministry here at our church. In fact, we've talked to other churches who, who do this, and one of the things they keep telling us is that if we expand more people will come, and yet we don't feel prepared. We're not sure having, we have enough people to serve a community that needs a lot of attention. And I mention that today because maybe God would call you to assist us in such an effort. Maybe today God is calling you to serve in a new way, in a more challenging way, because church, it's not about us. Servant leaders count the cost because serving is difficult. But But when we step out in faith and when we press into serving outside of our comfort zone, great things happen. In fact, we catch a glimpse of what Jesus shows us in the final scene, the reality of true greatness. The reality of true greatness. Now, back in the narrative, we see that this argument ensues and Jesus comes and calms down the disciples and he lovingly pulls them aside and begins to teach them about this reality of true greatness. He offers two examples and a calling. The first example he gives is about the rulers of the Gentiles, verse 42, and it says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. See, verse 42 literally says Jesus summoned his disciples. It's like he's saying, Listen, guys, come here, come here. We got to talk. We got to have a family meeting, friends, And what does it say? He says, he says, you've all been arguing about who is the greatest for a while now, but why don't you consider those Gentile rulers over there? What do they do? They lord power over people. They exercise authority over them. Do Do you see what Jesus is saying here? He is contrasting leadership in the world with what he has just been teaching them. He says that leadership in the world is marked by power and coercion. And phrases like lord it over and exercise authority emphasize a negative sense of power and oppression. In other words, the world's leaders rule through fear and oppression. And Jesus is saying, how does that work out for them? Do people really want to follow them? And then he says, let me show you a better way, church. He calls his disciples to something counter-cultural. Verse 43. But it shall not be so among you, he says. Whoever would be great among you must be your servants, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, don't miss this, church. Jesus says to his disciples, you see those Gentile rulers over there? Do you see how they use power and coercion? Don't do that. No. 
Not so among you, he says. Jesus looks them straight in the eye and says, it shall not be so among you. The Gentiles oppress their subjects and force them to follow them in fear, but it shall not be so among you. This is how we do things. This is not how we do things in the kingdom of God. You operate under a a different set of rules. Do you want to be a great leader? Be a servant. Even more than that, if you want to be first, if you really, really, really want to have a position of influence and authority, you must be slave of all. Did you hear that? What in the world does that mean? Well, there is no place, no place where the ethics and values of the kingdom of God clash more vigorously with the ethics and values of the world than the arena of power and service. That what Jesus presents here as our calling is a decisive reversal of values. That Jesus speaks of greatness in service rather than greatness of power, prestige, and authority. This right here is his clarion call to the self-sacrificial nature of servant leadership. And so Jesus uses both those terms, servant and slave, and while they can be synonymous, the, the use of slave indicates an intensification of focus. That the point he's making here is this, in the kingdom of God, leadership is radically other-centered. And if we're honest, I think even the world knows this. In fact, many of you may be familiar with business writer Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. And within the book, he identifies the highest level of leadership as what he calls the level five leader. According to Collins, organizations with sustained improvement and growth over 15 or more years all have this kind of leader. The kind he describes as the humble CEO. That the level five leader is often described with these words, quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mannered, self-effacing, understated. These leaders didn't believe their own press, but were a paradoxical blend of humility and professional will. In fact, author Scott Sauls further comments on the level five leader. He says, level five leaders do not have inflated egos, yet they're emotionally full. They have very few selfies, yet they have hundreds of pictures of the people whose livelihoods depend on them and whose flourishing they have undertaken as their personal mission. It is precisely because they don't seem interested in drawing attention to themselves that you want to give them your full, undivided attention. And where do you think Jim Collins got the idea for the level five leader? Well, I submit to you today that it is copyrighted from Jesus himself because it is what Jesus calls us to in this verse It is a call for the ethics and values of the kingdom of God to break through and redefine the way we we do leadership in our world. And it's all grounded in the one who changed everything, Jesus Christ himself. In fact, verse 45, it has been called the theme verse of the gospel of Mark because it's where Jesus radically reorients leadership. Look at what he says. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did the son of man come? Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And don't you see, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus didn't just teach this principle of service and self-sacrifice. He demonstrated it with his life. It is a pattern that is authoritative and transferable to his disciples. And what is so sad in this moment is that his disciples didn't get it. 
that James and John made their request at the beginning of this passage because they thought Jesus was some conquering hero who was going to defeat the Romans and they wanted to ride that wave to their own glory. In fact, I think the statement was a fourth reiteration of what he has been telling the disciples all along. He's been saying, guys, I'm going to die for you. It's what they least expected. No one would expect the Messiah, the one destined to receive eternal glory, worship, honor, and rule, to be a lowly servant, and fewer still would expect him to give his life as a ransom for many. But by giving his life, he would pay the price of release for his people. And here, friends, here's the reality. Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross so that you and I could be set free to live a life of self-giving love for others. Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross so you and I, his church, his people, could be set free to live a life of self-giving love for others. And he redefines true greatness and true leadership. Jesus is saying here, I am the true servant. Look to me. And in doing so, he teaches us a final and crucial lesson about servant leadership, that servant leaders put others' needs before their own. Servant leaders put others' needs before their own. But here, here we find something that's a big problem for us. Because we don't naturally do this. I put my needs often above others. In fact, if I have a fight with my wife, it's usually because I'm putting my needs before hers. But servant leaders put others' needs before their own. It's a mark of maturity. In fact, look at what the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He said this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul says that among the body of Christ, look to others first. He says that we should actively look for ways to lay aside our preferences for the sake of others. He says we should actively seek to die to ourselves so that others may live. And that's what Jesus did with his very life. And so Paul goes on in that chapter later to recount what Jesus did, that he left his place on high. He came down in humility. He did not count others better than himself. He obeyed the Father's will. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And it's what the call of all servant leaders should be, that we should be like Jesus. And when we live like Jesus, this world will be different This world will be different. The love of God will be manifested. As author James Edwards puts it, it, service is love made tangible. Service is love made tangible. And you know what? This idea of being a humble, sacrificial servant is something we talk about in our churches, but it isn't often the thing that is celebrated. I think we're too influenced by the celebrity Christian culture that 21st century America is prone to. Because we're infatuated with celebrity. We want to see what people are putting on Twitter and Instagram. And we want to talk about how great our, 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 we met somebody who was, who was a celebrity. But Jesus calls us to be humble servant leaders who don't get the glory, but want to give glory to God. Author Ann Voskamp gets it right. She puts it this way. She says, I'm humbly grateful here for every pastor, teacher, author who sees platform as altar as a place to come and lay down their lives in utter and complete sacrifice for Christ. 
that God also gave the platform for his name to be exalted, for them to decrease and for man to be invisible and clear glass to God. Now, I love that last phrase. That our calling as Christians is to be servant leaders who are invisible and clear glass to God. That when people see us, may they not see us. May they look through us and see Jesus. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Or as John the Baptist said, may he increase and I decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. And when we do that, we grow in servant leadership. We point people to the true servant leader whose life and sacrifice we live in response to. Now just imagine, just imagine a church filled with servant leaders. What would that look like? Well, I'll bet if we were a church filled with servant leaders, we would never have to make a plea up here from the pulpit for more volunteers, I'll bet everyone's needs would be met before we even asked because we would be so attuned to the needs of others that we would already be on, on it. I can imagine a church filled with radically gospel-centered people who give their lives in self-giving sacrifice because they recognize that God himself came to serve. And you know what? Expanding the table for the glory of God requires servant leaders. It requires people who are not in it for themselves. Do you see that? That if we really, truly want to expand the table, we have to be people who put others first. We have to be people who are willing to do the things no one else wants to do. We have to be people who ask, when a challenging situation comes up, what would a servant leader do? What would a servant leader do? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. There's one more song they're going to play for us. And as they do, consider this question this week. What is God calling you, where is God calling you, to be a servant leader? How would that look in your home? How would that look in your school? How would that look here at NBC? And meditate upon this. Jesus Christ was the true level five leader who laid aside his preferences and his comfort and his life for the sake of others, for those who were weak and those who were lost. And that's good news. So let's be good news people. Let's be people who, through self-sacrificial love and service, allow Jesus to reign in our hearts and to build his kingdom in our church and in our world for the glory of God. Amen.